Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message entitled, Why Worry, was given by Darren Roundson and is the 14th in our series, Sermon on the Mount. Hey, so grab a Bible. If you don't have them, raise your hand. We'll pass them out. Um, we're going to be flipping through a lot of the text today. Uh, I'm really excited about this message because it has to do with worry, and I worry often. And in fact, it's so funny. I'm, I'm supposed to teach on, on worry, and, and uh, of course, what, of all the messages that I get worried about, what, it's about worry. It's just hilarious. This week, I'm just anxious all week, and it's just hilarious as I tell people why I'm worried. Well, I have to teach on something. They ask me what I'm teaching about, and I have to like, just kind of lie. I'm teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, something in there. Anyways, it was just a funny week for me. God spoke to me. But turn with me to Matthew 6. We're there. Read with me, if you would. Follow along in your Bibles. It says, uh, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field they, uh, and how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God, who clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive, or seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Do not worry, Jesus says. I don't know what to do here. Do not worry, Jesus says. Three different times. And if, if you understand the Jewish context, anytime a writer in the Jewish society writes something three different times, he's really trying to get a point across. And his point is what? Do not worry. Now, what he uses as an example, I, I really don't feel like I struggle with uh, the clothes I wear. I don't really worry about that. I don't know about you, unless, of course, it's a party and you don't all of a sudden the closet you have is, is full, but you don't have anything to wear. I've never said that, um, but my wife could probably have, my wife said that a dozen times. Um, or, or food. How many of us honestly worry about food? I know people worry about these things, but as, as for us as disciples now, do we worry about those things? I don't really worry about food, I'll be honest. Unless it's 1 o'clock, I miss lunch, and I'm looking for the nearest Chipotle. I don't worry about food. Or, and it's funny to me that I don't worry about those things, but Jesus, in, in this entire Sermon on the Mount, rarely says something three times. It's rare. So it's kind of mysterious. Of all the things he's been teaching us over the last few months, all the things he says in chapter 5 and 6... Why is he saying, do not worry? And how, how on earth can he say, don't worry? Doesn't he know the sophisticated worries that we have? Some of us need A's on, on, our, on our paper. Some of us have, have health issues. 
Some of us can't actually even afford rent. Doesn't he know about that type of worry? Why? So two questions today. Why does he say it? And how on earth can he say it? Well, in order for me to answer that question, I was, I was praying about this. I just wanted to go and give us a Jewish perspective of reality. I want to give us a Jewish worldview because Jesus is speaking as a Jew. His worldview is brought up in the Torah, the law, and he has a, he has a particular way of viewing life, which most Jews would have had. So in order to have that, uh, we need to go to Genesis chapter 1. So flip over to page 1, I think, in your Bible. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. Are you guys along for the ride? You seem a little dull today. Um, I'm going to need some more cheers. All right, all right. Genesis chapter 1. It's the creation account. Um, In chapter 1, it says that God creates the heavens and the earth. And and in day 1, he creates light and darkness. And it says that there was evening and there was morning, there was day one. All right, and you follow along in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 26, but I want to give you what happened before. Then God kind of goes further, and he, he creates the skies and the water. And this poem, which is Genesis chapter 1, says that it was evening and it was morning, it was day two. Then God creates land, and he creates the seas, and he creates vegetation and plants, and he creates seeds, and he says that that was good. And that word good means it works for its intended purpose or its beauty. Its function is right. And he says it was evening and it was morning. It was the third day. And then the fourth day, God creates the moon, the stars, and the sun. And he, and he says that was good. And then it was evening, it was morning, it was the fourth day. And then he continues and he creates the birds for the sky and the water. He creates fish for the water. And he says that was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, it was the fifth day. You begin to see kind of this rhythm. And if you could read Hebrew, I don't read it very well at all, unless I have a dictionary. And if you read it, you realize that the creation account is really building up towards something. Each day is building on something else. So day one, evening, morning, it was good. And all the way to day five, and then day six comes. And what does God do? He creates animals, creeping little things. It says that... uh, let, let, let us bring forth living creatures, verse 24, and wild animals on the earth of every kind. So he creates cattle and cats and dogs that we dress up and parade around during holidays at Belmont Shore. And he creates all these animals. And he says that that was good. But then there's a pause. It doesn't say the day was finished. So it's like each day is getting more and more complicated. And in day six, he creates animals. And then it says in verse 26, read along with me. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and the cats and over the wild animals of the earth. Mind, it doesn't say that. I just put that in there. And over the, you guys are just dead today. Or are my jokes horrible? Dang it. Alex will tell me yes. I'm going to stop being funny. Give me a chair. Just kidding. Um, uh, where were we? Verse, uh, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it or, or steward it, rule over it, and have dominion over the fish 
over the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And flip over, if you have my Bible, which you don't, and uh, go to verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, and it was the sixth day. So from Genesis chapter 1, what did the Jewish community see? What do they have as their worldview? They have a worldview that says, actually, there's a God who created everything, all of creation, and his final masterpiece is humankind. And Genesis 2 says that God takes dust and his breath, his, the word for spirit or breath is ruach, and he breathes into the nostrils of Adam and he creates the first human. So humans actually occupy the spiritual realm and the physical realm together at the same time. We're the, mo- we're the masterpiece of all of creation. So the Jews and Jesus has, have this understanding. Most of us don't have this upbringing. There's the Big Bang Theory. But we don't live in a society that actually believes that actually we are the highest in creation order. And that God created us so that we would have a part in his, in his, in his creation and that he set us apart as a, as, a, as a loving creator. We get that, right? We kind of understand that. All right, well, um, this was written about 1400 B.C. by Moses, most likely. And uh, flip over to Psalm chapter 139. I'm trying to draw a parallel for us because we need to have the, just this backdrop. Jesus assumes so much. And this is what his backdrop is, that God created creation and that humans are very particular and very unique We are his masterpiece in creation. Well, that carries on. And about 400 years later, you have a guy named David, or a psalmist, um, and you have Psalm 139. And I just want to read this. This is an amazing psalm. I, I want you to pick up on what this psalmist is saying to us and saying about himself. It says this, O Lord, 139 verse 1, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and, and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high that I can't attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle in the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was hidden from you then I was, uh, when I was being made in secret, intricate, woven in the depths of the earth. Your eye, eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were ever formed for me, when none of them yet existed. How mighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them. They are more in the sand. What on earth is, is this psalmist describing? 
Remember, Jesus has not yet come into the picture. But this is theology. This is what the Jewish community had, the perspective. Not only did, was there a creator God who set apart humankind, but that, that that creator God is intimately and passionately involved in our lives, our individual lives. That's a powerful, powerful psalm. And then flip to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus comes onto the scene. And he has this perspective. Mankind is set above all of creation. We're called to steward the earth. And he understands that God is passionately and intimately involved. And we could have used a number of passages in the Old Testament to demonstrate that. I just like that passage. But then Jesus comes and he's preaching his Sermon on the Mount. This is what it means to be in the kingdom, guys. This is what Jesus' message was about. This was his nugget. And he starts off, do you remember the Beatitudes? He says, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, blessed are so and so and so. Basically, all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, hey, this God who's intimately and passionately involved in your lives, which hasn't really been the case for most Jews because of religion, Jesus now says that God invites you into his kingdom wherever you're at. He now invites you despite your sin, despite your brokenness. You could be spiritually dumb or ignorant. You could have no clue about spiritual things. And God says, actually, you're blessed. Blessing means that God is on your side. Holy cow. What is Jesus saying? He starts off and he's saying, well, now God's inviting you to participate in his work in his kingdom. And then he says, okay, so the bar has been lowered. You remember this. I've taught on this so many times. The, the bar has been lowered. Everyone gets in. He's accepting everyone's application, and you, you get accepted. Now, here's what it means to live in my kingdom. You become a disciple. You come follow me. And he, and he lists this expectation of kingdom life that is just far beyond anything you would have expected. But throughout those expectations, Jesus has a view of God that we're invited into. Remember uh, Matthew 6 Uh, Verse 6. I want to read over this because this is going to set us up. I promise. So he's explaining, hey, don't commit adultery, all these things. And all of a sudden he talks about prayer. And he says this, hey, whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus all of a sudden paints a different picture of God. Remember this? He invites us into a prayer life. That's function and primary identity. I'm sorry. That's function and primary purpose is relationship. Are you guys catching this? We're good? Jesus invites us into the kingdom. That God says, hey, he's going to meet us where we're at. And then he says, hey, by the way, that's our heavenly father. And when we pray, we're praying into a relationship of intimacy. And it's as if we're going into a secret room where our, all of a sudden our relationship to the world is put aside and all that matters is that we come to our Father. The word Father is Abba, which means Daddy. And we sit on the lap of a dad 
who loves us and knows what we need before we begin to pray. So he invites us into this intimate relationship. Now, all of a sudden, as disciples, guess what? We have all these things about you know, the backdrop of our faith. God set us apart. He's intimately and passionately involved. He's invited us into his kingdom. He's, he's, calling, he's saying we can call him Father. Well, guess what? Guess what? Our primary identity as disciples is beloved children of God. This is the backdrop that Jesus is teaching. All these things he's explaining to us, this is the foundation. This is where it really matters. So in the, if you continue into the story, he's explained to us that, hey, when we pray, sometimes that gets in the way unless it's about our heart. Hey, by the way, treasures, anything that you treasure or value, that can distract you from ultimate discipleship to Jesus or to the kingdom. So align yourselves, we talked about this last week, align yourselves with the kingdom of God. So let's trace this one, one more time. God set us apart at creation. He's intimately and passionately involved with us in our lives from the Old Testament. Jesus comes onto the scene. I could have given you a ton of more examples. He comes onto the scene and says, hey, doesn't matter where you're at. Doesn't matter. You get to play. You get to participate. And God's on your side despite what you think you are. And then he gives you an expectation of how to live. And then he says, hey, by the way, when you are invited into the kingdom, you're now the child, the beloved child of God, accepted fully. And then he says, hey, treasures get in the way. So guess what? You're going to have to choose. You either choose to live in that reality, the kingdom of God, or you choose to live in the kingdom of, the, uh, kingdom of earth where the treasures that you think serve you become your master. You either have God as your master or you have the treasures that master you. All of that sets up for this. Therefore. Whenever you get that word therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? That was good, yeah? Just remember that when you're reading. The reason Jesus says therefore, do not worry about your life, is because of all of this. We have to choose first. What reality are we going to live in? Kingdom of God? Kingdom of earth? And his assumption is, of course, well, God is real. You're going to choose to live in the kingdom of God. Now let's look at the passage. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus says... Do not worry. Do not worry. That word worry means to be anxious. Uh, it means to be pulled apart. There's a Latin root to it that traces it back to torture, a torture mechanism, where people would be literally pulled apart from four different horses by their limbs. That's what the word means. And you can imagine why Jesus is saying not to be worried. Well, if you actually look at the verse before, you have, you have two options, God or the earth. And if you don't choose, guess what? You get pulled apart. So you can't meet both of them. So he says to us, do not worry. And what he first explains is, hey, the, the most basic human essentials. Food, water, and clothing. Now, I just want to ask you guys, what are the things that you worry about? Think about it. Just write it down. Because that will help you during the response time. What are the things that you are worried about. Think of that word as worry. Uh, another example is you're uh, concerned or 
um, let me look, you, you feel a sense of trouble on events that are actually going to happen or, or the, the possibility of events. Most of it, how many, okay, let's just be honest. No one's going to judge. How many of you guys worry? Seriously, let's raise your hands. Okay. I'm pretty sure all of us worry, right? What's, how brilliant is Jesus? Do you see what he's done? He's literally walked through. Not everyone struggles with anger in the same way. Not everyone struggles with lust in the same way. Not everyone struggles with, with our words in the same way. All of us struggle, absolutely. But, you know, all of us are called to pray and give and fast. And all of a sudden, he targets something very significant three times. We don't have to worry. Just hang with me. This is going to land. We don't have to worry. What are the things that you worry about? I, I jokingly said that I was anxious, honestly, about this message. How, how, how ironic is that? So he says, don't worry about the human essentials. And then he goes on, and it's almost as if you can taste or sense the humor that Jesus has. He's sitting in a field, remember, and he says, Hey, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Well, hey, guys, what did we just read in Genesis? What would have every Jew on that lawn have known? Of course. That's not a question. Of course we're more valuable than the birds. They were made on day five. We were the climax of day six. By the way, I think he's doing this because we don't, we don't believe what he's saying. We don't, I, even now, I think most of you are like, hey, yeah, tell me how to not be worried. Well, listen to what Jesus is saying. Hey, uh, and, and can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? That, that could also be translated, can you add an inch to your height? Basically, what's the point of worrying? Does it do anything at all? Now, I would love for someone to answer that question. Does worrying do anything good for us? Silence. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon, the wealthiest guy in all of human history, according to these Jewish, the Jewish society, in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and is tomorrow, it's used for fuel, which was a common way of cooking back then. Will he not, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? I, I just think we have to just recognize that Jesus is making fun of his listeners. Literally. It's almost, it's, it's melodrama. I don't need to explain. The, the lily, Jesus is saying God clothes the grass of the field. He's taking care of the creation. By the way, grass of the field, that's like day three. Will he not much more care for you? You have little faith. And I love this. Therefore, again, the second time, do not worry, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? How many times do we have to hear him say it? How many times do I have to say it? And then this is, this is just a punchline. For if the Gentile, it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Anytime you read Matthew or, or any Jewish writer and, and they compare you to a Gentile or a pagan, you should feel insulted. You should feel insulted. There would be a gasp. 
Something important is being said. The Gentiles actually worry about all those things he just described. Now remember, the Gentiles don't have a heavenly father. They don't know God. They worship idols. They don't actually believe that there was a God who created all of creation, set humankind apart, that is intimately and passionately involved. They don't even know that God's inviting them into their kingdom. They have no clue. So for them, all they know is kingdom of earth. And of course, they don't have a choice. They're going to choose to worry. They don't have the, the Heavenly Father. I mean, the perfect illustration, I mean, most of you have heard stories about children um, that have been in situations or families that have never been able to provide fully. You've heard this. Where the kid, it, it just doesn't get fed every day. And you've heard stories of these types of kids, these children, being adopted into a family that can provide those needs. And at the dinner table, that child that didn't have enough food in the past actually has to store away food in his pockets and keep that for, for later just in case that meal didn't last to the next meal. Could you imagine being that family? Whoa. New stage. Could you imagine being that family that adopted that child? What you would say when you find their stash of food? I could just imagine the broken heart that that parent would feel. And I've heard real stories, but just thinking about it breaks my heart. You would say to that child, don't worry. Don't worry. I will provide for your food, for your clothing. You do not have to store away. Every meal will be put on a table for you. Do not worry about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, what you will wear. continues on and he gives us the answer to how to not be anxious. He says, but seek or strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You guys, the point of the message is to not be anxious and we'll find out why in just a second. But the, the reality is this, as disciples that live in the reality of a heavenly Father who loves them and calls them beloved children. The way we're supposed to move away from worry is simply to live with the kingdom, seek. That word seek is to continually pursue the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That should be our sole priority. That's what should mark our life. And if that's the center focus, well, all the things that we, we won't worry about them. If that's the central theme of our lives, well, we, we really won't be concerned with those things. And now, we've heard this before. I've heard this before. I've actually taught this before. But I don't live in it. Jesus is reminding us that it's about what reality we live in. Are we really living with the kingdom of God where the Heavenly Father is our Master? And if so, the kingdom should be our central focus. Our discipleship should look like that. 
And I think the truth is we all struggle. We all struggle with that reality. But here's what I want to just say. How many of us have honestly tried to live that way? Most of us probably look for the the seven steps to a non-anxious life or seven steps to live better, the self-help books. How many of us have honestly just taken the advice of Jesus and say, hey, I'm going to just try to align my life with the kingdom? And notice, this is the first time I ever caught this. He says, and his righteousness. What has been the theme of this entire Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember? Have righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. And he just ties it in. That even righteousness will pursue his righteousness. So the, the revelation to us as disciples, guys, if you do say yes, is this. It's simple. Hey, we don't have to be anxious because we have a Heavenly Father who knows what we need. Is that good news? So, he says, uh, just to, to continue through the story, he says, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. It's, it's almost just kind of the, the nail in the coffin. Jesus says, don't worry again. And now he broadens his kind of scope. He brings in everything that you could possibly worry about, even the future. If God provides for the present, won't he provide for the future as well? And today has enough trouble of its own. It's like, don't add to it, basically, by worrying. All right, to summarize And what, what, what this all boils down to is, if you could put this in a sentence, is anxiety is a representation of a lack of faith. Anxiety represents a lack of faith. That's as simple as, as what Jesus is trying to communicate. That if we live anxious lives, worrying about these things, whatever they are, and some of them are honestly serious, then we're living in a reality that God is not the Heavenly Father. Now, we can be concerned We can be frustrated. We can have nerves. But we're talking about anxiety and worry. So it boils down to this. We have a Heavenly Father, and Jesus is simply reminding us of our lack of faith. He has to say it three times, because we forget. Also, um, what should mark our lives, other than anxiety and worry, or even busyness for that matter, I just want to say that, should be single focus on the kingdom of God. So it's important to just understand for a minute that um, Jesus is not giving us advice. This isn't life advice, guys. Jesus is not saying don't be worried as an end to itself. He's not saying be, be, just, uh, be a righteous person as an end to itself. He's not saying become a better person as an end to itself. Do you realize the goal, the strategic purpose of what Jesus is saying? Jesus wants our lives to flow with the kingdom of God in such a way that we could point to the broken person on the street and say, hey, come follow me because I actually know a God that is moving and passionate for you and all you have to do is look at my life and they'll be transformed. This is the strategy. He wants spirit-filled people that are in consumed with the kingdom of God, that it spreads like wildflower, wildflowers too, and wildfire on this earth. It's not that we're, ang- we're, we're not just anxious people. That's not the point. The reason we're not anxious because, is because we're, our lives should point to God. And God 
He's not anxious. He's not worried about anything. Remember that, that, that message where we talked about be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect? It's, it's the, the goal of discipleship is to become more like Jesus Christ. Period. And you know what happens when you see that goal? Well, a lot of things. You start looking. You become more and more like Him. You become gentle. You become patient. The fruit of the Spirit. You probably get less angry. You're less anxious. And also you produce other people. You disciple. That's, that's kind of a goal of discipleship. That's on another note. So, most of us probably want three points. Okay, Darren, tell me how to live a non-anxious life. Just give me the, the, the practical. Well, I want to answer it through two questions. Um, how can Jesus, I ask this, how can Jesus tell us, how on earth can he say to us, don't be worried, don't be anxious? How, how does he have that? Well, we've got, we got to realize first that he has this massive backdrop behind him of faith. He knows who the Father is. He lives in that reality. That's how he says it. He knows that there actually is a God who set us apart at creation, that he's intimately and passionately involved in our lives. He invites us into his kingdom to become participants. That he says, hey, now, as in my kingdom, you get a new identity. You're my beloved child. And when you come to me, I know what you need. Just let's have a relationship. And the way you participate in life is becoming more like my son. And one of those things that you need to do is just be less anxious because actually I will provide for all of those needs so Jesus can say it because he knows and he simply lives in that reality. It's not just that he's the son of God. We have to put, put that out of our minds. But he lived in that reality his entire life. And why does Jesus tell us that? Well, I think I answered this. He tells us that. He tells us to not be anxious because simply God is not anxious. And we now have a mission as disciples. And remember, guys, when you say yes to Jesus, you're not saying yes to a ticket in heaven. That's part of it. You're saying yes to a lifetime of obedience, to pursuing Jesus in a way where your life looks more and more like him. You're transformed on earth. And the things that you do right now have eternal impact. And one of those things that's important that we carry on is simply that we aren't anxious and that we trust and live in that reality. Remember, faith is standing in the reality of what is true. We are called today to simply stand or walk or move in the reality of the kingdom of God. All right. I just want to, before we have Mickey come up, I want to ask a few questions for us today um, to just lead us into response. Um, there's kind of a, a challenge that Jesus throws out. First of all, uh, if you don't believe in a God that created the heavens and the earth, the God of the, New, of the Old Testament and New Testament, and if you don't believe in that reality, if you don't believe that actually there's a God who, who, whose son was Jesus Christ and that he calls us now, anyone that wants to accept him freely and meets us where we're at, he wants to invite us into his kingdom, 
If you don't believe in that, if you don't believe that your, your sole identity on earth now is, is this beloved child of this heavenly creator, then be anxious. If you don't have the family that will provide for you, well, you can be anxious. That's an honest, be concerned. So for some of you today, it might look like simply accepting the fact that there is a God and he knows what you need. And you are invited. That's, that's part one. And I think for, for most of us, where we fall is simply we are anxious. I saw all of your hands. So I'm not going to have you stand up. But we are worried often. And so my question tonight for you is that somehow, or, or a statement for us, is somehow your belief in that reality does not match up with how you live your life. Yeah, you mentally and cognitively, and maybe sometimes you feel emotions about it, say, yeah, of course, God is real. But you're not living in that reality. And so this morning, the response time looks like this. Where are the, what are the areas in your life where the kingdom of God is not so focused? What do you need to surrender over? And how do you align your time with him? Sound good? Let's pray. Lord, let's just sit for a second, guys, and just wait on the Lord. Lord, we just invite you into this time. We ask that you would just move among us. God, would you give us um, discernment on, on the areas of our lives that just are not lining up with your kingdom? Lord, would you reveal to us how we are storing up for ourselves and, and, and reaping and sowing because we really don't believe that you will actually provide? Lord, reveal to us the areas that we worry anxiously about. Where, where are we anxious, God? While, your guys, while your eyes are closed and your head are, heads are bowed, I just want to invite those, if there are some of you, I'm just going to put this out there. This is a perfect time. Um, if, if, if there's some of you here that have never really accepted the fact that God is real and that's reality and you want to, I just want to invite you right now to just raise your hand and to say, I want, I want to believe in that right where you're at. If that's you, you can just raise your hand. Lord, we thank you, God, for what you're doing here. And we ask that you would lead us now in worship. Allow us to make your kingdom first and your righteousness first in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To hear other messages from The Garden, or to find out more about The Garden Church, please visit us on the web at thegardenlb.org.